over the years of uh, pastoring, you get a lot of questions about a lot of, a lot of things. Many of them, most of them, spiritual questions, which is great. That's why you serve more than to answer the question of how long the Blackhawk streak is going or something like that. We are wanting to answer the more eternal and the more important questions. And I would say over all the years, if there's one area that I have observed a real confusion uh, spiritually is in the whole area of how God keeps Christians saved. Now this comes uh, from lots of little gatherings or our, our Taste of Bethel where oftentimes people will ask questions that relate to this and will throw out Christian jargon like, uh, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Or do you believe that you can lose your salvation? What do you think about that? And we try to answer that as best we can, but oftentimes there is confusion about it. I think there also is confusion with the way that we look at other people in terms of who's Christians and, and who is not. And I want to say on the front end that this is God's ultimate call. It's not ours. But uh, how do I look in the mirror? And how do I find assurance of my, of my own salvation? How do I know if I'm a Christian or not? I would bet that 1 John has made a few of us nervous because the purpose of 1 John is to help Christians know that they are uh, saved, and if I can say it this way, still saved. Uh, Here's what John says, this is his purpose for writing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's a letter about assurance, yet... The evidences that John points to that Christians should find assurance for their salvation are different largely than the ones that we are typically told we should look for. Now, I am going to tell you a little bit about my own story. And one reason I'm so passionate about this subject is that this was such a source of pain and fear in my life in the past Maybe you can relate to uh, my story. I grew up in a, in a branch of Christianity where the, the, the entire focus as it relates to whether you know you're a Christian or not is whether or not you had prayed the sinner's prayer. That's what it was called, the sinner's prayer. And basically it went like this. If you've prayed the sinner's prayer, you're in. Pray the prayer, you're in. And never question or doubt One bit, you have eternal life. When you die, you're going to heaven. Bada boom, bada bing, done. Like that. Now that sounds like it would be really great. And many people think that. And so they pray the prayer. Hey man, I just got to pray this prayer. I'm in. Done. What do I say? And exactly how do I say it? Because I very much want to have eternal life. It sounds good. But in practice for me, It led me into what I would call a kind of spiritual torture chamber because I was very conscientious about my status before God and my eternity. And I wanted very much to know that when I died, I was going to heaven. And so 
for me in my youth, what this meant was, is that I was racked with doubt. Because if, if the basis of my salvation is the prayer that I prayed, now I found myself wondering, did I pray it right? What if I, what if I didn't exactly say it right? And I missed something essential in the formula. Am I going to die and find out that I am in hell forever because I didn't, I didn't say it right? Or what if I wasn't sincere enough in the saying of it? What if I just said it and I wasn't genuine in the saying of it? Or maybe I didn't meet a threshold that God requires. Like let's say that I was 60% sincere in saying it. And God requires 75% sincere. Is my entire eternity in eternal punishment because I didn't say it sincerely enough or I didn't say it rightly? And so the fruit of that then was that I prayed that prayer over and over and over again. I remember laying in bed at night and these fears and these doubts would come upon me and I would, I would pray, God, if I didn't say it right before, I'm saying it as best I can now. Or if I wasn't sincere enough before, I mean, I really, really, really mean it this time. I believe, really, hoping each time that it would stick and that it would be the one that took away the doubts that I had. And this was a big a big deal to me to show you my schizophrenia. I, one of the things that I was told was a solution to the doubts that I had was that I, I was told this: you got to drive a stake in it. You got to drive a stake in it. You got to have a, a date, a time when you prayed it, you write it down and then you just never ask the question again. Then, you know, cause you can always look at the piece of paper and say, Oh, Look, I, I, I prayed it on this particular date. Now, I've showed this before, but it gets at the point of what John is going to bring to us today. This is the Bible that I grew up with right here. This is my childhood Bible, King James Schofield Edition. So if, if, I, if, if anyone's going to heaven, it's somebody that has the King James Schofield Edition. <laughs> and yet it was not enough for me. So I heard about the whole drive a stake in it. And so this is the back page of my childhood Bible. We actually scanned it and we have it, we have it up here. I want, I want you to notice, I wrote this when I was a teenager. At the top, and I wrote these in order, okay? So the first thing that I wrote was the Romans Road. Now some of you might recall the Romans Road. It was an uh, evangelistic uh, guide to how to help somebody come to faith. And so you walk them down the Romans road and there's certain verses in Romans. And so I wrote those down because I wanted to be ready to share the gospel and to, to, to know what I needed to say in a moment like that. So I wrote it down on the top of my Bible. There are the verses. November 7th, 1984 Bible conference at Cedar Heights Baptist church, church that I grew up in. Steve DeWitt dedicated his life to the will of God, whether it be part or full-time Christian service. Now, I remember that we had a missions conference. It was one of these missions conferences where, uh, you know, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. And on the eighth stanza of Just As I Am, we got to ask the question, do you love God? And if you do, you'll commit yourself to full-time ministry. That's just the way that it was. Okay, so the people that love God went into full-time ministry. The people that merely liked him remained lay people in the church. 
And I wanted to know that I loved God. And so to prove it to myself, I went forward, stood up in front of the church. Everybody clapped. Here are the people that are saying they're going to go into full-time ministry. There I stood. And I wrote it down, November 7th, 1984. Put a stake in it. I must be going to heaven because, after all, if I dedicated myself to full-time ministry, it must mean that I'm saved. Hmm. January 20th, 1985, a few months later, Steve DeWitt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, asked Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. Signed my name to it. Why? Because I wanted to know it for sure. So notice the progression. I'm concerned about other, the lost and having an evangelistic uh, device. Then I'm committing my life to full-time Christian service, if that's what God wants for me. And then I'm wondering if I'm even saved. It seems like those should be reversed, doesn't it? I became a Christian, I'm going to full-time ministry, and here's the evangelistic tool as I share the gospel with other people. I had it backwards. And you see in this my kind of schizophrenia about, am I saved or not? And I was, I was making commitments to God, and I was wanting, I was going forward. There was a I went forward, I went forward, I went forward. I prayed the prayer, I prayed the prayer, I prayed the prayer. If, if I could commit myself to ministry to know that I'm going to heaven, then I'm going into ministry because why? I want to go to heaven. And you see how I was, I was racked with doubts and so much of that because I was trying to derive my assurance of salvation from the wrong place. The emphasis was on the prayer, the sinner's prayer, and all my hope and confidence was in the fact that I had prayed the prayer and prayed it rightly and sincerely, racked with doubt. And I wonder if perhaps some may be able to relate to what I'm saying. What I hope in this whole series, and in this message in particular, I think puts its finger on a problem in evangelical Christianity is I don't want anybody to have false assurance of their salvation. I don't. I also don't want anybody who is a Christian to not have assurance of their salvation. And the goal of 1 John is to help people that are not Christians to realize they're not, no matter what their assurance is, and to help those who are genuinely saved to realize that they are. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why the Apostle John wrote it. I think today's message will be helpful in that regard. So our text today is 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 has to be understood in order to get to verse 19, but I'm telling you right now, verse 19 is where we're going. Okay, so let me read the text. Here's what John writes. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, this begins a a new section, and you can see in your Bibles there, verses 18 through 27, deal with another evidence of genuine salvation, a third test that John brings up. It is the doctrinal test. What do you believe about Jesus, and what do you mean by Jesus? And we're going to see in a future message that uh, they were distorting and playing with the character and the nature of Christ. Indeed, even saying that Jesus was not the Christ. 
And you play with that, and now you have a different gospel, one that doesn't save. Now, to get to verse 19, you have to understand verse 18. And to understand verse 18, you have to understand what had happened in this particular local church. So let me tell you the story. The Apostle John was pastoring this church in Ephesus and acting as a kind of bishop over the larger area of Asia Minor. He likely was the last living apostle, so he's the last one who uh, you know, walked with Jesus, saw the miracles, was part of those special moments at the cross and at the resurrection, uh, commissioned by Jesus himself. So obviously a very special, very important person in the story. So he's pastoring this church, and you would think, wow, if you have the Apostle John in the church, then everybody would just get along, and it would, it would be fantastic, wouldn't it? No, actually, what happened was, in this church, there arose a group of people led by some leaders, some teachers, who were teaching and saying things in contradiction to the Apostle John. And we've already seen some of those, haven't we? In chapter 1, Uh, Verse 6, we saw that they were saying, hey, if you're a Christian, you're under the grace of God, don't worry about sin. In fact, you can even celebrate it. And we saw in verse 8 of chapter 1, they were saying, hey, we Christians, we can rise to a place where sin is no longer a part of our life. We can really become very, very special, uh, like high caliber elite Christians. And John refutes that as well. We're going to see what they say about Jesus and his character in a few verses. And, And John refutes that also. So what happened was that these guys began saying these things. And apparently they were compelling and influential. And people began Within John's church, they began to follow not what John was saying that Jesus had said, but what these guys were teaching. And so that this led to a schism within the church. And if you've ever been around moments like this in a local church, you know how painful they can be. Imagine the things that are being said between the groups. Oh, they're this way and they're that way. Oh, yeah, well, you're this way and you're that way. And gossip and slander and the kind of rancor and painful divisiveness that happened, which ultimately led to these leaders and those that were following them to leave the church. They split from the church. They left. Now, you might say, well, okay, it's just good people not getting along. They just went down the road to, uh, you know, uh, second pres or wherever, and they joined that church and on, on we went. No, we realize this is the first century. The church is trying to establish a church in every city. There was a church in Ephesus. So there, if you left the church, you basically were leaving the one expression of authentic Christianity in the entire city. They were leaving Christianity, or at least Orthodox Christianity, led by the Apostle John himself. Now, with that said, we see now John identifying what lies or lied behind what these guys were doing and what they were saying. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Antichrist, last hour. Some of you that are into uh, eschatology and prophecy right now, you're getting very interested in this message because... This terminology is uh, part of what the Bible talks about lies in the future. 
Uh, But that is not primarily what John is getting at here. In fact, let's just walk through that a second. He says, this is the last hour. We could look at this and say, wait, it was written how long ago? 2,000 years ago? That's a long hour, isn't it? And it's because we hear hour, and like Americans, we think in terms an hour is 60 minutes, and each minute is 60 seconds, and I watch the clock, this is an hour, and uh, some of you during the sermon will be doing that very thing right there, and will be saying, boy, this, is, this service now has gone for exactly this many minutes. Uh, this is not the last hour, but it is a long hour here at the church. Why? Because we are chronologically oriented. That's the way we think about time. The Bible doesn't look at it from that perspective. It is not so much chronology that it is the last hour as much as it is theology that it is the last hour. And from the Bible's perspective, the defining moment in all of redemptive history is when Jesus came. His death on the cross, his resurrection, his his atoning work was the decisive moment in the whole story. And so you have then what Jesus did, and you have Jesus return. Everything in between is the last hour, or Paul calls it, he says we're living in the last days. We've had a lot of days since he wrote that. It's not chronology, it's theology. The next thing that's going to happen is that Christ is coming, and the culmination of history, and the establishment of judgment, final judgment, and the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. Everything in between the last days and the last hours. So we can say we are living in the last days. And that may mean there's another thousand years before this whole thing is culminated. But in terms of redemptive history, we live in the precarious moments where Christ could return at any moment. We don't know when he's coming back. Like a thief in the night is what he said. Therefore, Peter says, live soberly. Live soberly. These are the last days. As you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. What he's referring to here is apparently teaching that he gave to them, as well as prophecy and other scriptures that talk about a future person. John calls him Antichrist. He's the only one who does. Uh, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. You can read Revelation, and, and there's descriptions of the beast and the false prophet. Daniel has something to say about this. All of it is talking about that someday there's going to be one central figure who will embody all that is in opposition to Jesus. And that's what Antichrist means here. It's not so much a false Christ, it would be, that would be pseudo-Christ, as much as it is anti-opposition to one person who is going to be opposed to everything that Jesus is and all that he's doing. And you can read Revelation to see what happens to him. What John is saying here is not that that Antichrist is here, but rather, notice what he says. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. And what John wants people to realize, and what we need to realize even here today, is that the spirit of Antichrist, that opposition to the goodness, the beauty, the glory of who Christ is, the lordship of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, that we live in a world where there is a spirit and an ideology that stands in opposition to him. 
That Antichrist is here already. Little a Antichrist is here already. Anybody who opposes Jesus is Antichrist. That's what he's saying. Now, we might think that the Apostle John, you know, the Apostle of love, the one who laid his head on Jesus' uh, bosom, you know, the, the one who writes so much about love, that if he was your pastor, if he pastored the church, it would all be love. I mean, uh, flower petals flowing, falling from the ceiling, just graciousness and kindness. And he would never say anything disparaging about anyone. He's the apostle of love, after all. Wouldn't that be what it's like to be pastored by John? We find out, uh, no. Notice who he's talking about and what he is calling them. That's verse 19. Who might be he be referring to when he says, Antichrists have come? Hmm. We've just gone through a split where individuals led and taught things contrary to Scripture. Who is he calling Antichrist? It's those, those leaders, exactly. And notice what he says about them. And this is verse 19. Here's our focus. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. What John says here is that the fact that they left us means and indicates that they were never truly of us. And he calls them antichrists. Can you imagine them leaving? We'll see you, Antichrist. Don't let the door hit you as it leaves. Bye-bye. God's the apostle of love. How could he do that? He is calling them what they were. He is the apostle of love and truth, by the way. And he is calling them and identifying what lied behind the teaching and the attitudes that they had. So his logic here, and, and you got to get this, and this is going to be our whole focus for the rest of this message. His logic here is airtight, but you have to realize his presupposition. He is saying, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. What is John basing that whole assumption on? It is this, that all genuine Christians will continue in the faith. All genuine Christians persevere. They endure. They stick with it. They don't quit. They don't give up. They don't deny. They don't walk away. And if they do, what he is saying here is they are showing by their actions and their attitude and their teaching, they're showing that they were never truly of us. Even back when we thought they were of us, they were not truly of us. So chew on this a moment with me, because it gets to what we're talking about. Perseverance reveals genuine faith. Non-perseverance reveals non-genuine faith. Now, does that mean my perseverance saves me? That now my assurance needs to be in the fact that I am persevering? No. Like me trusting in my prayer, that will lead you into a spiritual torture chamber where you're trying by performance to, to, to earn assurance of your salvation. That is not what we're talking about. Rather, it is evidence of genuine salvation. It is another fruit and display of the grace of God within us. This is a work of God. 
Theologians call it preservation. Say that with me, it'll help. The preserving work of God. And I want all of us to understand the correlation between what God does to preserve us and how that flows into our perseverance. God's preservation means our perseverance. Or to say it this way, the perseverance of the saints means that all true believers are preserved by God in their salvation. The result is that we persevere in the faith until we die. Let me say that again. The perseverance of the saints means that all true and genuine believers are preserved, kept by the power of God. The fruit of God's preservation is that all genuine believers persevere in the faith. Now, this truth, properly understood, will be a massive help to all of us in terms of assurance of salvation. It certainly has been true in my own life. Now, you might be like, okay, well, that's nice that you say that. Where does the Bible teach that God preserves us in our salvation? Let me give you, it's all over in the Bible. Let me give you some examples. My sheep hear my voice. This is John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, that's a wonderful verse right there. I have used that verse at the, at the deathbed of people in our church. To say, we are kept in the hand of God, the hand of Jesus, and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And if that's not enough for you, we are also kept in the hand of God the Father. That's a strong two-ply, isn't it? Power of Jesus, power of God, no one can snatch us out of his hand. Love that. Great encouragement. John 17 Jesus says this, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. This was Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Philippians 1, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will... Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. That's a wonder. Well, what's it saying? He began it. He finishes it. Kept by the power of God. And then Romans 8, gloriously, probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible, Romans 8. Listen to what is said about the, the surety of our salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want you to notice what tense is glorified in. It's in the past tense. Wait a second, I thought glorification was something yet to happen. Why would the Bible speak of glorification in the past tense? Here's why. Because from the perspective of God, it's a done deal. If we are predestined, we will be glorified. That's what he's saying. And these verses and many others just pound home the truth to God's people that our salvation is not an act that we do. We are preserved by the power of God. 
And our assurance can't rest in my prayer, my perseverance. My confidence has to be in the promises of God. He has promised that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. And he has infinite resources at his disposal to keep us saved. Okay, now, lots of amens, people with me. I'm glad for that. Here is where there is oftentimes confusion. How does God keep us saved? How does God keep us in the faith, on the path? I'm going to tell you. He has infinite resources to do this, but the, the, he, he works through means to do this. It's not just like a boom. He keeps us saved dynamically. He works through means to keep our hearts from hardening. He, keep, he works through means to keep our faith alive. You say, well, what kind of means are, is that? Primarily by the Spirit. Which Ephesians 1 says that our salvation is sealed by the Spirit. Okay, that's good, great, sealed, done. No! The Spirit works within us. How? By the Word of God. Through prayer. He encourages us. He teaches us. He convicts us. He helps us. He is the paraclete. That spirit within us is dynamically working, Christian, in your life. Jealous for you, James says. Doing what is needed to keep you from being antichrist and to, to, to walk away from the faith or to, to deny Christ in some way. He is there working in your heart every day. And beyond that, Hebrews tells us that God works through the church. The proclamation of the word, what's going on right now, is a means by which God keeps our hearts sensitive and wanting in this week to follow the Lord. He uses other people to come along and to encourage and admonish and to give an example and to mentor and all the things that the role that we all have that we play in one another's life. God disciplines every son that he loves. So that when we get off the path, or we're on an errant path, and we're on the path of sin in some way, what does God promise? He will bring discipline. He will correct us. He will get us back on the path. He brings trials into our life to develop perseverance, James 1. He brings pain into our life to to wean us off of this world. He brings joys. He brings sorrows. All of these things he brings and he uses in order to keep us saved. We are no less secure because God uses means than Fort Knox is secure because the U.S. uses means to keep the gold safe. God does that. So that preservation is not simply, I pray the bear, boom, I'm done, live whatever way I want, I'm good with God. Why? Because he has promised that he's going to save me if I pray the prayer in some sort of way. That's not what the Bible teaches. And it leads to what I had last night where an individual came to me and said, your sermon just smoked it. And went on to talk about a family member who grew up, prayed the prayer, lives immorally now, 
will not talk about it when, whenever it's brought up. I prayed the prayer, eternal security, get out of my face. Last night, I had that conversation. This is not pretend. This is the way that people rationalize and psychologize their immoral lifestyle, confident that they're going to heaven. God preserves us, and that produces perseverance in us. And John says, here's the logic, if we do not persevere, it means that God is not preserving us. And if God is not preserving us, it means that we are not actually children of God. Because he promises he'll he'll uh, preserve every single true genuine believer. Do you see how that works? And when you play with that, and you mistake God's preservation and our perseverance, it leads to all kinds of wacky Christian expression and ravaging doubts within your heart, and that's my story. So, preservation produces, as a byproduct, perseverance. And let's talk about this, the perseverance of the truly saved. And again, this is where so much a mistake is made in this. Again, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. There's perseverance. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, what, would, what do you suppose that some would say, some who kind of lean t- towards the, pray, just pray a prayer and you're good. What would these people say to these, about these individuals who taught what they taught, did what they did, brought schism to the church, and left? Possibly would say, hey, we just disagree. You're all good. John says, you're antichrist. He calls it for what it is. In other words, we can't misunderstand the preserving work of God. And when we see a failure in people's lives to persevere, and the, and the longer that, that apparent lack of perseverance goes on, the less confident we should be that that individual is, is a child of God. Now to say that does not mean that God's people will not have seasons of dryness and will not have seasons where we walk away from God and will not have seasons where we are apparently not, not children of God. Our heart is not for the Lord. But the longer that season goes, the less confidence we should have. So that I, if somebody came to me and said, I prayed a prayer when I was whatever age, and, or I went forward at this such and such, or I was at a camp and this happened. But, you know, for the last 40 years, I've lived pretty much like the world and couldn't give a rip about God. Am I going to heaven? I would say, no, you're not. From my perspective, God's the judge. Now, We have people that come to faith in the Lord. They have habits that they are bringing into their faith expression and their faith experience. And for a season, there can be kind of, it's kind of clunky and wobbly. What do I say to them? I say, you're in the process of being made into the likeness of Jesus and it's clunky. And when we see little moments of digression and seasons of sort of not, no mojo there. We see that as part and parcel of what it means to go from the old man to the new and for Jesus to become increasingly Lord over every area of life. 
So we're not looking to, we're not the judge, okay? We're not the judge. God is the final judge. Sometimes I'll do funerals and people say, well, you need to say if they're a Christian or not. I don't know. Now, if I do the funeral of a, a man who walked with God for 40 years, his life was a blessing to all who knew him, and it clearly was a faith expression, I do, that, I do that funeral, and I say, he is in heaven. Family, you be encouraged. You're going to see him again if you're in the faith. Praise God for the gospel. But, in, but in, in, in situations where there is no apparent heart for God, there's very little evidence that they you know, really gave a rip about the kingdom of God and serving him and all the rest. Am I going to say, he's in heaven, so you all rest fine? No, I am not. Why? Because it undermines everybody else's understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So what does perseverance look like? It looks like a Christian whose directional walk, if I can use the analogy from a few weeks ago, whose directional walk is towards the things of God. And there is meandering, and there is stumbling, and there are pitfalls. Read Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. He talks about all of this. But the direction is towards the celestial city. I am going towards the will of God. I am increasingly wanting to please God with my life. That's what perseverance looks like. And that enduring long walk in the same direction is the fruit of God's preserving work in our life. And if I stop walking, or worse, go the other direction, I should not be going directionally away from God and think that in the end I will have eternal life. It is not performance-based salvation. Perseverance as a fruit of being kept by the power of God. That's what I think John is saying. And the fact that these people left shows that they were never truly a part of it. Now, just to give you a few more examples of, of this perseverance, look a few verses uh, ahead. Look at verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Abiding, remaining, continuing. If you if you abide in, or if the gospel continues in you, you're going you're gonna to continue with God, is what he is saying. Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Key word there, if. If. Now, Hebrews says, all who truly believe will do that. The Bible says that. But we have these verses that we have to bring into our theology. Perseverance is a fruit of preservation. Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that verse. Why? Because it shows the balance of these two. Who's doing this? Well, you could say, or you should say, God is doing it. For it is God who works in you. That's preservation. But what does that produce in us? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's perseverance. Preservation leads to perseverance. That's what we find there. And we can go to Hebrews. You have all of these warnings about do not harden your heart. And if you do, there is another, there's no more sacrifice for you. What are those saying? 
Taken as a whole, what they are saying is that salvation is of God. Completely. We are saved by the grace of God. We are kept by the grace of God. We someday will be glorified by the grace of God. We are kept in all of this by the power and the resources of God. If it was up to us, we wouldn't make it till Tuesday in the faith. It is God doing it in us so that he alone gets the glory. The faith that saves is a gift from him. This sanctification is something the Holy Spirit does, and glorification is something that we could never do, but God does it by his grace and because he loves us. It's all of God. We want to make that clear. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. That's what John is saying as well. But to see and realize, because if you just focus on that, you tell everybody, you're good, you're fine, don't matter what you see in your life. And it's missing this whole other aspect that John brings up here of perseverance. Our confidence has to be in God, and yet we must look to the indicator of perseverance uh, indicating that God is preserving us. So are you getting what I'm saying? I can run this around four four different ways if you would like. But it basically is that point. God preserves. We persevere. I can tell you we are absolutely secure in our salvation. Absolutely. Or God is a liar. And if God is a liar, then this whole thing crumbles anyway. All who trust and believe in Christ will be saved. That's what the Bible says. We trust in that. It's 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 secure. Truly, but it also is a persevering faith. And as I look at my life, and I would encourage all of us to do this, as I look at my life and I say, you know what? Here is, I I put my faith and trust in the Lord. I was a sinner, still am a sinner, but I, I really was a sinner. And that faith has produced change, right? God begins to change us. And as we live our life following the Lord, increasingly I see myself becoming what I didn't used to be. And as I see that, I don't trust in that for my salvation, but I am assured of my salvation because I see the work that God is doing in my life. And the longer I go with that, and the more sanctification I see, the more I realize, you know what? What God is doing in me, I would never come up with myself. And Satan certainly wouldn't want me to be doing this. What is the explanation for my heart for God and my tenderness towards people and my, the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit that I see in my life? The only explanation, it's not me, it's God at work in me. And those, that can lead then to such a, a, a confidence So that you can lay in bed at night. If I could talk to the old me, the 16-year-old me, I'd say, Steve, quit trusting in your prayer and trust in God. And believe and take him at his promises. And what you're going to see in your life over time is that you are increasingly going to be living and thinking and doing things that evidence the fact that God has changed your heart. So rest assured, my friend, you're as saved as God is true. I would say thank you very much and go right to sleep, and I would have slept like a baby. 
And I want to say that to this room. But I don't want anybody here to miss the perseverance part. And maybe you've come into this service and, and you've, you know, some Christian experience back in the day. You've walked away from God. You, 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 you came here for whatever reason. And like the individual that talked to me last night, you're maybe like that person saying, I'm saved because somebody told me I was saved and I, can, I, I wrote it down in my Bible. Do not look to the page in your Bible. Look to your life and see the fruit of God's change in you. Which is what John gets at in moral categories and in doctrinal categories and in loving categories. If I am this way, it means this. If I'm not that way, it doesn't mean that. There is assurance that God wants us to have. The Spirit gives it to us. But the Bible teaches about it. And I want every single non-believer here who maybe has false assurance to come to genuine faith in the Lord. And every genuine Christian here to be as secure in that salvation as God is true and to live a life of freedom anticipating eternal life. So when I go to your hospital bed and and, and you are about to step into eternity where I can say these very things to you and say, brother, sister, God has promised. Are you trusting in yourself? Are you tr- who are you trusting in? My hope is in Jesus. He's my Savior, my Lord, my all. I'll see you in heaven someday. And to die confident that the next face you'll see is the face of a beaming Jesus welcoming you into eternal bliss. So to that end, I have a few questions for reflection here. First is, if I struggle with assurance, to what or whom am I looking for my confidence? Is it God or something else? Secondly, are God's promises allowing me to be lazy or distracted in my spiritual walk? Third, do I realize my role as a means of preservation in the lives of fellow Christians? We have a role to play, Hebrews teaches us. And finally, am I humbled that God would graciously keep me saved to the end? And that really is the bottom line. None of us walk out of here beating our chest. I'm persevering. Look at me. No. I only persevere because of the grace of God to preserve me in the faith and to keep my Keep that faith alive. So there's no pride in it. Only humility when properly understood. So we're just going to have a few moments here to allow you to consider this. Okay? And so I'd ask you to, you know, you can look at the screen, look at the questions, bow your head, look inside. Eternity is a long time, friends. Where is your confidence? Where is your assurance? And then I will, uh, I'll have a final, a final word. So let's just spend a few moments of meditation together.
God, we thank you that you have gone to such lengths to show us your commitment to our salvation, preeminently in the sending of your Son, but also these promises and and so many promises. Lord, we do trust you. I pray that there would be no false assurance and only biblical, true, enduring assurance.